We've had a beautiful autumn here in London, and while Confex editor Sophie Grove is still out enjoying it, I'm Gillian Tobias here to introduce this week's episode of Confect Corner that we recorded together in the studio. October has been a month of fiery coloured trees that dazzle in the low autumn sun against bright blue skies. And there's a crisp bite in the air that makes you excited to dig out your winter coat and pull it tight around you. As the temperatures drop and the nights draw in, that feeling of warmth and protection as winter's harsher elements descend is one of great joy. Whether it's the cosiness of a new jumper or lighting the fire as you settle in for the evening, or perhaps you opt for a different type of warmth, swimming or soaking in a heated outdoor pool as the cool air whips at your cheeks, or luxuriating in a hot bath until you feel lightheaded and your fingertips start to shrivel. On Comfort Corner today, we're going to be heading out to an Icelandic spa to test out its waters and think about the rituals of bathing. Back inside, we'll meet a jeweller who has been inspired by the simple satisfaction of pottering around her house. And as we bring our woolens to the front of our wardrobes again, we'll also be giving our top tips for coat shopping this season. This is Confect Corner. The beauty of this is the kind of the, the losing track of time because you're so relaxed. You're scrubbed down like a baby. And then afterwards, when you're really snuggled up, that's when you start mulling things over. And it is a great place to think and heal, I think. You want to make a piece of jewellery that's so well made that people of the next generation don't feel like they need to take it apart because it's such a great piece of design. Welcome to the ninth episode of Confect Corner. As always, I'm joined by Gillian Tobias and Confect Style Director Marcella Palak. And this month, Marcella's in Zurich and Gillian is back in London to keep me company in the studio. Gillian, it's been a while. <laughs> well, it's always nice to uh, be face to face in the studio. And actually, I'm enjoying London in autumn. I think it's a really wonderful season here, don't you think? It is. It's beautiful. The conkers. Yeah, and the leaves. Trees, but you being yeah. the leaf raker, gosh, I just walked through Regent's <laughs> Park with piles of gorgeous leaves and I thought of you. <laughs> Even there's a Virginia creeper out the front of our building here. And it's just amazing. It's red. The whole building is red, so it feels like the proper fall of your imagination. Well, or the fall of work. Canada. It always makes me very nostalgic <laughs> when I see that brilliant red creeper. It's like being back in Canada. And Marcella, how's Zurich? Is the cold weather creeping in over there? Today it's snowing <gasps> yellow leaves. We oh. have a beautiful <laughs> Indian summer so far. <laughs> Sophie and I, our eyes lit up. We imagined white snow falling like, on wow. the Vorstrasse. <laughs> <laughs> Just like in Confect magazine, we like to set the tone at the start of the programme with something that's caught our attention this month. Gillian, it seems you've made good use of your time back in London and you've spotted a new place for us 
to clink glasses. Well, <laughs> to, an exhibition of to, Confect. To clink glasses before we head off to Paris because um, I've just discovered, uh, um, well, my favourite, favourite building in London is the St Pancras uh, Renaissance Hotel, which is a grand Victorian railway hotel. It's just exquisitely been restored. Part of the hotel is the original 19th century ticket office. When the hotel reopened, it was a bar, but then it closed, much to my distress. And now, November 16th, after painstaking research, it's being reopened. And because it's a listed building, this ticket office with soaring ceilings and like goth windows and brick walls has to be kept like a ticket office. So you have all the... uh, ticket counters and the original features, but it's been redesigned and reimagined by a French architect, Hugo Toro, uh, really with harking back to the Victoriana years and the age of great train travel. And it's going to be such an atmospheric place for us to meet for cocktails or a meal. The chef is uh, the former um, Chilton Firehouse chef who's reimagining the menu there. So it's a perfect place for us to go. Amazing. Marcella, you're invited too. But it's such a, it's one of those buildings near, it's neo-Gothic. Yes. um, And it's just got that sense of being a palace of transport. The moment they invented this amazing steam train, they thought, build something to just celebrate this. It's so grand. And the wonderful thing is, it's called the Booking Office, um, 1869, but the restaurant and bar gives onto the train platform. So you can see the trains departing and coming and you get a real sense of, of travel. Even if you cannot travel, I think it's a destination to just hark back to the, the glorious age of train travel. And Marcella, we were both in Paris earlier this month um, for Paris Fashion Week, as I said, um, and you found a new spot to pick up some incredible vintage. Yeah, like during my days uh, in Paris, I visited a new boutique in the middle of the Golden Triangle in Paris on the Rue François Premier. What a pleasure to discover beside Valentino, Jill Sander, Balenciaga, a rail with few selected luxury vintage pieces by Didier Ludo. Probably you know this little boutique in Palais Royal. It's the first address for vintage couture in Paris. So I thought vintage fashion is getting attention more and more also in curated luxury stores. And I love this because I think a vintage piece is so nice to combine with new fashion. It gives just a unique touch to your outfit. So bravo for vintage. Well, it's interesting because there is a few places down in Saint-Germain you can have appointment-only vintage moments. There's one just tucked near the the Marché Saint-Germain where it's just sells Chanel. And um, they're sort of under the radar until now, and I think people are starting to really reevaluate these treasure troves that have been specialists for so many years. And now they're creeping into the department stores too. And you can just imagine all the places, like if, if, if you are someone who is into vintage, where you can find like old houses and grand dames who are passing away and suddenly you open their trousseaus of incredible vintage. Like France has to be one of the best places to search out vintage, I would think. Definitely. It is, yes. I think we were talking about this in Paris and some of the best pieces that you saw you know, people wearing at the fashion weeks were vintage. You could see that people with real confidence and 
a, a real signature style. Uh, this weekend I went to a, a dinner for Freeze and there was a woman wearing a three-piece suit. She looked amazing and I asked her where she, it was from and she said, oh, it's a wedding suit of a friend of mine you know, who just only wore it once and then <laughs> didn't wear it again. So it's some guy who just, it was brown. And she looked amazing and it was the most kind of like elegant. Oh, the groom suit. Yeah, the groom suit. <laughs> I love it. And I was a bit stopped in my tracks because I imagined her to say like, oh, it's just, you know, whomever because it was so beautifully, like just so beautifully tailored. But I think there's a moment now where that is just the most elegant thing to say. Um, it's a brilliant comeback. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the most sustainable way to buy fashion is to buy used fashion. And I must say it makes me also so happy, you know, when you discover something on a flea market and it's exactly your size and you try it on and it fits like what a wonder. And then it costs not much, so it makes you so happy. It's like really a treasure you are you're having. Well, I have been doing something that really costs nothing, which is um, a little bit of blackberrying. That's how you say it. <laughs> Where and how and why? Um, so blackberrying is just really a kind of foraging for blackberries. But it's quite nice that it has its own word. And I went to Cambridgeshire this weekend and, and really got stuck in. The hedgerows are heaving with blackberries because I think we had such a chilly summer that the season has been pushed. So I just, I wrote a piece about it for, for our newsletter because I became so, I mean, It's such a methodical, mindful, relaxing, peaceful thing to do for an afternoon. I suppose there's a rhythm to it, isn't it? You, and you search out, it's like finding Easter eggs. It's so Easter good egg for hunt. you. And also just quite hilarious how people, it brings out the best or the worst in people. Competitive picking <laughs> in my family. Also certain people that just don't do anything and just munch. <laughs> and, um, and at the end you can make beautiful jams and pies and things. But I think that Foraging, you know, it can be a little bit tiresome. People, you know, in local parks trying to kind of dig up, you know, horse horseradish roots and things, <laughs> and you think, come on, when we live in such a sort of this dem this demographic kind of um, urban reality. But when you go to the countryside and you manage to really harvest something that would otherwise just be just you know, go to waste, be it apples Eaten or... by birds. Yeah, it's such a wonderful thing to do and it, it, it just makes you feel, I don't know, singular for a moment and just very peaceful. So, highly recommend it and I think because of our lack of summer, <laughs> there's still moments to go if you, if you have the inclination. Oh, Sophie, that ode to nature seems like it leads nicely into our first guest. Well, this month we start the episode with a creator of fine jewellery that straddles the world of art and wearable design, Swiss-born, London-based Cora Shabani. Her works are one-off pieces that circumvent typical jewellery retail stores and are instead showcased at galleries, fairs and private settings. After studying art history in Florence and New York, Shabani moved to London in 2001, launching her eponymous brand a year later. Her latest collection, Pottering Around, was inspired by a lockdown largely spent rearranging and repotting the plants in her garden. She joined me earlier to talk about the joy of finding inspiration from the quotidian. Cora, welcome to the studio. It's lovely to see you here and so fascinating to unpack this phenomenon of 
pottering, <laughs> pottering around in the lockdown in your house in London is the inspiration for your latest collection of beautiful jewellery. But let's just start by asking you, how do you potter? <laughs> how do I potter around? That's a good question because, of course, you know, I've, I've lived in England for 20 years now and um, people ask you, what do you do for the weekend? And you say, oh, I, I kind of pottered around the garden or I potter around the house. And really that what that means is you've gone around and, and done things that are quite nice to do, but you haven't really, at the end, it's, you have very little to show for it. And what happened is that over lockdown, I ended up pottering around in my garden and physically realized that this expression of doing pleasurable things and having little to show came from literally replanting things from one little pot into a bigger pot. And if, if you really enjoy, uh, over lockdown, I had actually 18 tomato plants because we had such a gorgeous spring. I actually got an enormous amount of plants to grow. And then, you know, it's kind of moving the annuals uh, and the perennials around. You know, now it's autumn. You you take out all those things that you bought and tested out for the summer and you decide, am I going to keep them? Am I not? Should I put them in a pot and stick them in the corner and buy a winter plant that makes my miniature garden nice? And um, anyway, I love pottering around my garden. It's my favorite activity and my favorite place to go shopping is my local garden center. Well, it sounds idyllic and I'm very envious of your tomato plants. Mine didn't didn't flourish in quite the same way, it has to be said. But I think it's interesting that you took sort of aesthetic inspiration from this experience of gardening and, and pottering. Um, how does it all sort of emerge in your work? Well, it's usually a set of coincidences. Usually, you know, like I was pottering around the garden and then I was revisiting some of my old sketchbooks and I realised I'd made a plant, you know, plants and flowers is one of the most obvious things in jewellery. And I'd made these two vines going up a, a kind of ribbon, trying to reinterpret something. And then I realised below I'd actually made it more and more gem-like. And until the end, I actually used pots as kind of weights for the for the necklace. And then I thought, oh, actually, there's such good designs. Let's put them end to end. And then it kind of looked like a pot end to end. And I really liked that motif. And so I thought, okay, well, actually, let's let's do something with motif. It's so nice, even though it looks a bit retro at the time. And then I took that motif, and in another, you know, in a, a previous cactus collection, actually, I'd already drawn an upside down pot, of which a kind of a, a large cacti dangles down. I never made that design because it didn't really fit into the collection as a whole. But I realized actually only yesterday when I looked through the cactus sketchbook back in 2012, that that idea of a pot was already seeded somewhere deep in my subconscious. It's interesting because what you're doing in a way is elevating this quite quotidian act into something very beautiful using the most rare and precious materials. But that sentiment is quite interesting to me because we're really at a moment where people are re-evaluating just normal acts and trying to find moments of wonder and pleasure and in just pottering around. Or in simple things. I think it's the everyday thing. And I love the, the title of your magazine, Confect, which, you know, is confectionery. And really my one of the first collections that, that really kind of maybe propelled my career is called the Copper Mold Collection and is actually rings that are all types of confect. And, uh, and so actually one of my early inspiration was confect and I made small rings that are like cupcakes or bundt cakes that are decorated 
jelly rings, a kind of a lattice tart ring and all of these things. And so um, like your magazine, Confect, which is a very everyday pretty thing, inspired other collections. Since then, I've done, I did clouds, I did cacti, and now it's pottering around. So I'm always kind of inspired by something out there in real life. Sometimes it's just abstract and, and design, but I, I love being inspired by the everyday. And you mentioned that you've been in Britain for 20 years. You're originally Swiss. I wonder where your inspiration comes from in terms of your childhood, because you had a very interesting, creative childhood. You're the daughter of an art dealer, and you and you were surrounded by artists. Maybe you could talk a bit about that and how you think maybe those seeds um, sort of, I don't know, maybe they're sown very early in our minds to create, you know, these inspirations that come out later in life. Well, I think, you know, it's it's, it's something I'm, I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. And I've realised that I think subconsciously, you know, being around artists and creative people and, and having confidence, you know, I think what it allowed me growing up around a lot of artists doing very having that freedom then to say well actually I can do this there's no limits I grew up in a household where not only art but design and fashion and jewelry and anything was actually considered an art form so I grew up in a house where everything was judged and you know even the your flower arrangements you know it was a my parents were very particular about flower arrangements even if they were hand picked it was actually considered a much better act than a an average bouquet and so everything and anything was interesting and and thought out and appreciated so if it was looking at the sky and saying wow this looks like a baroque painting inspiration or or you know so i i think it allowed me to look at the world in a very different way so when i looked at confect i thought wow this is great packaging design. You know, the, the cook or the pastry chef is really packaging all these flavors in a beautiful shape. And, and originally I wanted to do packaging design. So I think that really inspired that. But it's interesting that you went from this world where everything was an art form and, and, in, and started designing jewelry. You mentioned um, packaging design, but your pieces are very abstract and quite whimsical um, and very, very precious and beautiful. I wondered why why you were drawn to jewellery design and what it is about these objects that we carry with us, the emotional value of jewellery that resonates with you. I actually always really... I liked jewellery early on. Actually, looking back, I, the first money I ever earned, I went off and bought a bronze Greek and Roman ring and I made a lot of jewellery as a child and teenager, which I thought was normal for every girl and then when I have my own daughter I realized actually not every girl really enjoys making jewelry as much as I do so I think I've always just really loved it my mother always wore and you know had a great sense of style with clothes and jewelry and it was all uh, had equal importance and then when I got married I got engaged age 20 um, you know I looked at jewelry suddenly a lot more and there wasn't a lot out there that I liked and I thought very naively that unlike packaging where I'd have to sit in front of a computer discovered for being creative and then told what to do by my big client, I could have real freedom, you know, packaging gemstones, gold and, and designing. It was still a three-dimensional object. It still required problem solving, but it would give me freedom. Uh, and re- of course, that's kind of naive because uh, doing anything part-time from home and you still need clients is is um, was a very naive step. I, and sometimes it's very good to be naive because if you really, if I knew everything there was 
to do about jewellery, I probably would have never dared to start. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I'm drawn to a couple of your pieces on the table in front of us. This amazing pot. It's a, it's an earring. Is this an earring? It's an earring. Um, and it's, gosh, it's beautiful. Can you can you describe it? So the pot is, the pot is actually not symmetrical. Uh, there's a left and right pot because I thought if I make a, a symmetrical pot, it will always look crooked on the ear because we never put on earrings and look at our faces and always correct it. So they're slightly um, off-center, left. there's a left and a right, and it's the main part of the pot is jasper, then set in gold. It's cut with facets like you usually would do with a, a clear stone. And then there's a kind of the upper edge, the rim of the pot has spessartite garnets, they're orange because I have actually quite a lot of pots where the top rim is painted. And so that's kind of where that inspiration comes from. And then the plant are these kind of wild leaves of two different tones of aluminium. We call these the fern earrings, and they all move and jingle. The plant is quite light, because actually the top with a stone and gold is quite massive. And so it's, a, it's the juxtaposition between something very graphical and very organic that I, I really like. One of the things that I really wanted to do is make really high-quality jewellery that was whimsical because anything that was whimsical out there was cheap or you had very serious jewelry and I think what I wanted is something that was really at the highest quality made but still had that humor and lightness to it or was just wearable for a young person and wasn't yeah didn't have that serious that seriousness to it something I wanted to wear it's quite a tropical plant this one I mean, it's it's what it could be. It could be yeah, anything. It's waving. It's 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 spiky. It's green. <laughs> I mean, and these are quite statement earrings. And absolutely, when you wear them, the the green glows like nothing on earth, and everybody looks at you. And 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 so far, I've never used titanium and aluminium in my jewelry, partly because I don't necessarily. I really like gold, but for here, the juxtaposition really, I think, makes sense. And you know, I think everything has to be used in the right place at the right uh, time. And and the other thing I always do, I never copy nature. I'm never trying to copy a pot and copy a real plant. It's always kind of abstracted. So whatever I'm inspired by, and even even in the cloud collection, you can't say, oh, this is a this type of cloud and this is this kind of thing. It's it's very it's always slightly abstracted, a bit graphic. And here again it's kind of it's a plant. We all can see it's a plant, but we don't have no clue what it really is. It's interesting that you said you're drawn to gold. I mean I spent a bit of time in a workshop in Hatton Gardens talking to an amazing goldsmith and he said that he's always been drawn to gold since he was a child and that he knows other people that were drawn to, to silver or wood and it, he felt that every person had their material. Do you feel like that? I think I, I really do. I think I was always drawn to gold. Having said that, when my mother, my sisters got two bronze rings, green, and my mom looked at me and realised that I felt left out. She's like, oh, you can have this little gold ring with a cameo when you're a bit older. And I th- and I was horrified because all I wanted was a bronze ring. But I think bronze, like gold, have this incredibly rich color. And my favorite color as a child was always yellow. So the fact that I like gold is maybe not so surprising. And it's actually a very uncommon uh, color. It's one of the least liked colors. Um, yellow. In yellow, definitely. Poor yellow. Poor yellow. Um <laughs> But I've always liked it. And, and actually, if you, if you you know, silver is a great material, but actually it's a nightmare to polish. It's very soft. So it's kind of an easy first start, but because it's so soft and 
it leaves heat marks. It's it's actually a very complicated metal to work. It's actually, I think, harder to be a great silversmith than a goldsmith in some ways because the material actually is uh, more fragile. And is there an emotional value to you in producing jewellery, the idea that these are objects that we keep with us, they really are things that we covet? Oh, definitely. I, I, you know, when I make jewellery, I kind of think, okay, let's make it in a way that if in 50 years' time when this jewellery is going to be completely out of fashion, and, and that's a good thing because otherwise it would have never been in fashion, um, when it comes out of fashion, what are, what are, are the people going to see? Are they going to think it's something worth chucking, something worth taking apart? I mean, these, these jewels don't have that much value that they're worth taking apart. But if you're using serious gemstones, you know, you want to make a piece of jewellery that's so well made that people of the next generation don't feel like they need to take it apart because it's such a great piece of design and well and well made on top of it that it will stay intact because jewellery is really the ultimate recycled object. People in the old days used to recycle things every, and the jewellery in the beginning of the 20th century, they recycle them every three years. I mean, you'd have diamonds and you'd take them out and you'd have a new tiara made if you really could afford it. And and, and over history, people constantly recycling things. Um, we have very few gold chains left from the Renaissance, even though we're very popular because in the end, people melted them down and made new things with it. And so... Quality, and I think that's my Swiss side, quality is a really big thing for me and making things that are um, really would last and and people admire. That was the jeweller Cora Shabani, and you can find out more about her jewellery at corashabani.com. Sophie, it was so interesting to hear Cora talking to us there about uh, what pottering means to her and how the everyday can be quite profound if we stop to appreciate. Um, Are you a potterer? I'm I'm an epic potterer, and I think you can, you can find moments of real wonder and beauty in just pottering, but it's such a lovely Saturday afternoon thing to do where you're just maybe rearranging a cupboard or polishing something, and you just at the end of it all, what have you done? But you've sort of just neatened your world, and repotting plants. I've been doing a bit of that, and it is just such a lovely sort of. I know you're not going to, it's not like painting your house a wonderful azure blue, but then at the end of it, you feel this sense of achievement <laughs> somehow. Well, you know me, my, my home is my sanctuary. And what I was finding I was enjoying with the pottering is like, I was looking at my walls and I was thinking the same old, same old pieces of art and pictures. So I, I got it in my head and I started rearranging the art and taking it down and going under the spare bed and finding pictures I hadn't uh, had seen for a while. And actually in Paris, you know, along the Bouquinet, I found old prints that you, know, you can get for five euro, lovely Vogue uh, posters. And I've just been rearranging and reframing the pictures and the images on my wall. It's a lovely refresh. It's a, it's a, a lovely way to redo your house. Martella, I don't imagine you pottering around like the English, no. but do the Swiss or the Czechs have a, an equivalent? <laughs> oh, I'm not a potter at all, but actually I'm trying to enjoy the colourful outdoors as long as possible because it's fantastic outdoors and the mountains are amazing. I mean, imagine all the yellow larks and the blue skies in Engadin. I mean, who can stay at home? <laughs> who can stay at home polishing their, <laughs> their like, <laughs> When you have mountains <laughs> an hour <laughs> away. Whatever. I know, yes. dusting. No, 
I mean, that's someone's got to be out there, and that that has to be you that's under me, the yes. amazing and the blue checks, skies. Probably. Yes. <laughs> Coming up, we'll be luxuriating in a new spa in Iceland, and we discuss the art of finding the perfect winter coat. But first, we head to Eastern Europe for a report on the Romanian art scene. Besides Constantin Brancusi, whose sleek sculptures pioneered modernism and captured art lovers in the 20th century, not many Romanian artists have become marquee hits. No wonder, as despite a strong local art tradition, Romania was behind a thick iron curtain for decades. But in recent years, Romanian art has come or come back into its own. Artists like the painter Adrian Gainier and the late Jetta Bratescu have made international splashes. And new arty energy has risen in Bucharest, Cluj and now in Timisoara, the country's third largest city. Its Habsburgian architecture is a perfect backdrop to the Art Encounters Biennale. Kimberly Bradley reports. Timisoara, the capital of Transylvania, is sometimes called Little Vienna. It's easy to see why. Curly-cued buildings flank squares lined with outdoor cafes. In the sunny days of early October, the fourth edition of Art Encounters Biennial opened, titled The Other Us. It's a survey of Romanian art alongside international stars like Hito Steyl, Oliver Lerich, and Lor Provost, as well as emerging Eastern Europeans like Anna Hudakova from the Czech Republic or Sofia Kesteres from Hungary. Sculptures, paintings, videos, and sound works are on view in venues around the city. But how did this off-the-beaten-track biennial come to be? Diana Marinku, the artistic director of the Art Encounters Foundation, the motor behind the event, tells the story. So the foundation started its activity in 2015 with the first edition of Art Encounters Biennial. And at first it actually grew very organically and naturally. It was supposed to be a large exhibition about uh, the Romanian art scene since the 60s until today. So a large survey made by two curators, Reinald Schumacher and Natalie Hoyos. And after they researched a lot into the Romanian art scene, uh, they decided together with Ovidu Shandor, the president of the foundation, to transform all this research into a biennial because of the need to connect the Romanian art scene with other art scenes in the region, but also internationally. And secondly, to try through the biennial to support the production of new works by Romanian artists, but also other invited artists, uh, and to try to create a new circuit for um, new artworks. And why would a new circuit be necessary? In Romania, you don't have so many support structures for producing art. And especially for the younger generations, I think it's very difficult to find the resources to work on a daily basis. So this is uh, one of the main missions, let's say, of the biennial and of the foundation. Besides that, what we are really focused on is to open exhibitions, artist residencies, lectures to the large audience. Under communism in the mid-20th century, Romanian art's audience wasn't large. Ambitious artists often left to study in places like Paris. Artists from this period flew under the radar, so the aim is to rediscover what was happening within the country and the region at that time, and add it to the established canon. Of course, during communist times, there was a kind of isolation. It wasn't as hard 
as uh, many people would tend to think but at the same time you have these blind spots uh, in art history let's say of the last 50 years that are now being filled up with new information which is really important and this is uh, for example the case of the show that Kasia Regis curated for this biennial which is a survey of the uh, artistic practices connected to nature and land art and many of the names you see there are not necessarily well-known names. Kasia Rechisch, currently a curator at the Tate Liverpool and soon to be artistic director of the Canal Centre Pompidou in Brussels, curated two of the biennial's four main exhibitions. The first, called Seasons End, addresses the aforementioned historical work, while another, named How to Be Together, shows monumental contemporary works from Eastern Europe and beyond in the city's transit museum. It's a question about the, the society, it's a question about our relationship to nature. And I started with the idea for a historical show as a response to my own question of what is the potential of Timisoara, why the annual in Timisoara. And for me as a, as a curator, as an art historian, it's always really valuable to go to two biennials where I can get to know something about the, the historical practices which are maybe not so widely recognized. The region had its own version of land art. A local artist group called Sigma was active in this area in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, among other things creating performances and actions in the Transylvanian countryside. They were the first ones in Romania and maybe even in the region who to go out to landscapes and use it as a tool in their pedagogy or as an inspiration for their works. And this is how I started to look at the Eastern European version of Landert, which evolved into something completely different. It became a much bigger show than I thought. Featuring 30 artists like Agnes Dennis, the Oho Group, and Jersey Beres, it's a fascinating dive into climate-related work in the form of performance documentation, music, videos, sculptures, and drawings. And the questions addressing that show, the climate emergency, the status of women, the status of collectives and communities, the inspirations that came from nature, these are the key plots developed in the contemporary part of the show. There we see rising star Hanna Miletic from Kosovo working with textiles, feminist paintings by Ndidi Emefiele from Nigeria, and watercolors by environmental activist Suzanne Husky from France, with many artists making their biennial debuts. Art Encounters' other major section, curated remotely by Melbourne-based curator Minea Mirkan, takes a broader view and deals with how individuals grapple with the uncertainty of our world today. Here, for example, Anne Pravatsky, Berlin-based but with a Romanian background, shows a Zoom screen on which a group of people repeat the word stra together, collectively invoking a distant female ancestor. There are so many new artists who are so interesting and they no longer reflect only on these issues um, regarding their past and history and so on, but they are more natural, so to say, in choosing their topics, in choosing their artistic research. And I think that for them, it's really important to have a platform to express themselves. Younger Romanian artists like Traian Kerakesh now focus on ecology or technology. In a video work, Kerakesh repeats words like extinction and existence like mantras. After spending time in Paris, he's returned to work in his home country. 
The revolution in 1989, it began in Timisoara, and then it moved to to, to Bucharest. And for me, I consider Timisoara to continue the, the cultural revolution <laughs> because it's, it has very, a very active art scene. And um, I really believe in Timisoara. In many ways, this Transylvanian city is a place of artistic discovery, one that will continue with Timisoara acting as the European capital of culture in 2023. Why come to Timisoara for this biennial? Well, you see something you never see at uh, other exhibitions. <laughs> for Confect in Timisoara, I'm Kimberly Bradley. Thanks, Kimberly. This is Confect Corner, and now we're heading to Iceland. Long famed for its natural springs and communal bathing culture this year, saw another player hit the scene as Reykjavik's Sky Lagoon opened its doors. Sky Lagoon is built into the promontory of Kopavor, a town just 15 minutes drive from downtown Reykjavik. The infinity edge of the main pool looks out across the bay to a volcano, a glacier and a presidential residence and its seven-step spa ritual sets it apart from nearby geothermal offerings. To test its waters, Confect Corner's Paige Reynolds took a trip to the Icelandic capital. Here's what she found. The volcano that is erupting in Reykjanes, it has been going like very quiet for the last few weeks, but uh, sometimes it erupts. So when it's the most powerful, it's been spewing volcanic lava, like 300 meters in the air. And then uh, on this side, when it's visible, we have the only glacier that's visible from Reykjavik area called Snæfellsnes Glacier. And then in the middle of here, the gorgeous white house with the red roof, that is the president's uh, residence. It's the favorite neighbors, so we wave them every morning. <laughs> Skylagoon's manager, Dani Petrusdottir, is describing the awesome views from the infinity edge of the outdoor pool that unfurl across the bay beyond the sea's ripping tides. But the Sky Lagoon is more than just a dip in these impressive waters. Standing in front of the main lagoon and the roaring waterfalls that cascade from its rocky backdrop, Danny explains the seven-step ritual, which starts with a swim in the lagoon before heading to a cold plunge pool and a hobbit-like turf house, which contains a large wooden sauna, mist room and steam room. The second step of the ritual is then to plunge into a cold pool. It's about 10 degrees Celsius. You go in, if you're brave enough, you sit down count to 10, 20 or even stay in for a minute. Then step three is in the turf house and you go in and you go into this uh, dry sauna with the most amazing view. It's about 85 degrees Celsius. So again, the body warms up. You stay there for 10 to 50 minutes. The fourth step is then a cold drain. So the cold drain is to awaken you, refreshes you after the hot sauna. It is kind of the most fun step of the project. There people are laughing and having fun and maybe laying down on the, on the floor. It's like being a kid again, running through the rain. And after that, you go into the middle of the turf house where you get a salt scrub. 
this is a salt scrub we spent uh, just about two years refining and you do the salt scrub uh, full body scrub and with the salt and the oils on the scrub on you go into a steam room as we follow the edge of the lagoon around to the far left we find the cold plunge pool and adjacent turf house where Danny explains the ritual's restorative effects. So this is the cold oh, this plunge. is the cold pool, yeah. okay. So you can see, it's, my record is about um, 20 seconds or so. <laughs> oh God, that is quite cold. But is, is the kind of cold to hot, is that quite an important part of the, yes. the process? Yes, absolutely. It is, uh, it, you know, it's so good for many things, like if you've been, Doing any types of activities, it's really good for muscles and also kind of this. Uh, the, it's both the physical part of it, but also like more importantly, it's the mental part. So you know the release of happy hormones after doing a call. It's it's so hard, but afterwards you feel so amazing. Wow, the view when you look back. I hadn't looked back yet. Yeah, and it does just look like it's meant to be here. And and kind of this is just kind of the backdrop, but. Being in nature is just so important for us just to kind of put the mindset at ease. It would have been so easy just to kind of build a building and have a, the lagoon over here. So the experience and sensorial design, we went all the way in terms of that. We just kind of wanted to have every single detail that contributes to good feelings and, uh, and the wellness aspect. And that's why we kind of did this backdrop of the lagoon. It also kind of embraces the lagoon. Probably the best feedback we got was uh, a local who said, wow, it's actually like they built the Narnia closet here in, in Kopovovur. Uh, because you go through a building that it doesn't, it doesn't look much, but then you come out here, it's, uh, it's a whole different world. For Icelanders, the geothermal bathing experience isn't some kind of biannual affair, save for those moments when you're desperate to unwind and have some alone time. Quite the opposite. For this nation, bathing is an innately social affair. You can read in the sagas about how the settlers and the Vikings used the hot water just to survive the winter and for recreational purposes, and it was so important. But in modern days, it is also the social part that's so important. So people go, usually they don't take their phones with them. So it's, it's one of the occasions when you have no digital interference or noise and you can just sit, and you're usually with your loved one, and have a great discussion on things. So that's why we kind of designed all the seating area that is a little bit rounded, so you can come together and have a great discussion mm -hmm. on things. And, uh, and that, that's one of the key things about the Icelandic bathing culture. It's, it is the social aspect. This kind of strong bathing culture means that while Sky Lagoon is sure to be near the top of tourist picks, in reality, it's the relationship with the locals that remains key for Danny. Actually, I went in last week. I met these three elderly ladies who were here seventh or seventh time. So they used to go to lunches together. Now they go come here and they do the wellness ritual and they absolutely love it. So. It's kind of that step further that we took, that we think, and, and uh, we've heard that that's definitely what people value a lot. So for um, locals that want to come here often, we just launched these uh, six-pass options, and the, the ladies were thrilled to hear, hear about that. And, and that's what we say, like we're seeing, like for the locals, it's like the date nights, it's the friends coming together, rather than going to lunch, we come here, 
And uh, that's what we're hearing is becoming a, the place to meet and have a great time, feel good and just enjoy yourself. Listen to the silence. You're in the middle of the city, and and this is what I love the most about this place. Even though when we were building this, when you kind of stopped and listened to the silence. Um, so this is the bar area. The bar is actually underneath there. Oh wow! Yeah. So it's kind of a cave bar, um, and then we have seats all here, and it's just you know perfect place to toast for a wonderful trip or a visit. You know, first of all, stay hydrated in the warm water, but also just kind of, you know, why not celebrate life a little bit? You're here, right? You lose track of time here. Um, I once um, spoke to a lady who thought it was four o'clock. It was actually close to six o'clock when she came up out of the water. So people are staying long, long time. And the beauty of this is that kind of the, the losing track of time because you're so relaxed, which we kind of, we like. So, Standing here with nothing, 50 months later, being able to welcome guests, it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, blood, sweat and tears in a relaxed environment. You know, it was such a surrealistic <laughs> project to be part of. Um, and then the first time we got to get in and I kind of experienced for ourselves, uh, it is one of those, you know, you just kind of, you have to see it. And it's difficult to describe book all about how people feel and if we end our day and everybody goes here relaxed you know with lots of great memories uh, it's a good day for us it's a very good day for us for Confect and Reykjavik I'm Paige Reynolds Paige thank you so much for your intrepid reporting <laughs> lucky page um, um so fascinating though because obviously it's a beautiful spa but there is such an amazing culture of bathing in iceland it's incredibly social uh, marcella does that strike any sort of similarities with with the czech republic for instance hmm I mean, there is there is a there is a tradition of bathing, and all the beautiful traditional historic bathing um, towns like uh, Marianske Lasnie, Karlovy Vary. So my grandfather went there each fall for for a couple of days. Um, but actually, I never were. I never was there, but I would love to go. Well, I went there with my father, who, of course, is Czech. And uh, he, he kept on talking about the incredible medicinal waters, the incredible medicinal waters. And I was so looking forward to it. And finally, I had my little weird-shaped pottery cup. And I was tasting these medicinal waters, which are really quite sort of metallic and quite a shock to the palate. Um, I hope they were very healthy for me. But they, they were not quite what I was imagining. I think I was imagining champagne or I something. I think you've got to get in. <laughs> in the waters, Gillian. <laughs> drinking it. And this is it, though. I think the most amazing forum for talking and just mulling over this social um, aspect. I remember going to Budapest and walking into one of these huge steam rooms in one of those baths. Um, I can't remember which one it was, but the, the women were just talking and talking and just this cathartic sense of chatting and gossip and setting the world to rights in this boiling hot space. 
um, is just a really wonderful site. But also you do find some like in Istanbul, uh, the hammams, where they're more contemplative. You hear the sounds of the bathing, but I think there's a silence there that's quite therapeutic in its own way. When I lived in Istanbul, I'd go every week for the kind of ritual. And you did... You really chat after. Hmm. You, your your sense, you, you're scrubbed down like a baby. And then you're chuck, <laughs> chucking buckets of water over your head. You can't get a word in then. And then afterwards, when you're really just snuggled up, that's when you start um, mulling things over. And it is a great place to think and make decisions and heal, I think. Well, for those of us who don't have access to any geothermal pools for the moment, uh, we can take solace in the next item. As colder climes creep in across Europe, we get a final word on how to hunt for that crucial seasonal companion, the winter coat. From the importance of shopping in person to considerations of versatility and practicality, fashion writer Grace Cook takes us through some tips and tricks for finding the perfect woolly partner. For the fashion fan, fewer seasons are quite so satisfying than autumn. As the leaves on the trees turn to rusty hues and begin to blanket the pavements, crunching underfoot... The chill that lingers in the air heralds the need for cosy layers and that all-important winter coat to wrap up in. Browsing the rails for a new winter coat is the one retail experience I look forward to every year. The laborious process of trying them on, whittling down my options to find that one true coat fills me with joy. I approach it the way fussy singletons shortlist their potential suitors. Stores are filled with hangers upon hangers of robust woolens, fuzzy shearlings or buttery leathers that promise a winter of gentle tactility. Fabrics like lovers to shield you from the creeping cold. Shopping for a coat is really something you must do in person. For a start, you have to get a handle on the weight and texture of the fabrics. You'll only really get the feel for a coat once it's on. Everything from length to fabric weight and placement of pockets is key. If you plan to shop online, proceed with caution. I've bought many bad coats this way. Long woolen coats with oversized lapels that looked very chic on the 5'10 model online, but on 5'3 me had me feeling weighed down and almost suffocated. I've bought belted dressing gown coats that looked polished when fastened, but like a shapeless sack worn loose. There's a reason many fashion designers wear test their outerwear. One annoying component can render it to the back of the closet forevermore. A few fail-safe shopping tips can reduce the risk. The first thing to think about is where exactly you plan on wearing the coat. Outside, naturally. But are you in the city or the countryside? If you're in the city, you'll likely be spending more time switching between being indoors and out. Opt for more fluid, lightweight fabrics that will help you seamlessly go about your day. We all know there is nothing worse than being stuck on a hot tube carriage or feeling bundled up in the back of a cab. And you can't exactly slip off an overcoat and pack it in your everyday tote. Single-breasted styles have less fabric and are therefore less fuss. Lightweight woolens are a good choice. And top tip, if the coat of your dreams might not be warm enough, add a padded gilet liner underneath. If you live in knitwear, be sure to wear one of your bulkiest knits for the shopping trip and take the handbag you use the most with you too. 
My go-to this year is an unstructured black overcoat that's almost floor-length, with blazer-like lapels. The real bonus is it's crafted from a weighty cotton jersey that feels just like a sweatshirt, but looks really smart. But like in all good relationships, it pays to be flexible. And some brands are offering adaptable outerwear too. Designs where you can zip on a hood or zip off the sleeves are guaranteed to meet all your needs. Personally, I've got my eye on a cropped modular parka by London brand Martha Stance. It offers a good choice for that city-country lifestyle or days when the weather simply can't make up its mind. For Confect Corner, I'm Grace Cook. Now, Marcella, as Confect Style Director, you must have some thoughts on how to find the perfect winter coat. Um, do you invest every year or do you have a classic that you always go back to? Actually, both. So I might fall in love in a coat and then all rational arguments are completely useless. Then it's just I'm away. I'm falling in love. <laughs> but, of course, I'm also working on a kind of a collection of winter coats with classics like a camel, a navy and a grey coat in two lengths, long, one very long one and a shorter one, not to mention a beautiful shirling and then also a thick puffer jacket and I could continue like this. And But one of my favourite coats is actually a duffel coat. You know this, of course, from Scotland, but I this is my companion since years and years. And as soon one is really shabby, then I invest in a new one. So you see, I have many, many coats and I hope you too. I love your duffel coat. I just want to get that out there. It's absolutely beautiful and quite pristine. So do you sort of have one duffel coat for, for best and then some others for really mucking around it? Yes, I have three. <laughs> one, the oldest one I'm taking to Morocco trips. <laughs> the, the middle one I'm, I'm taking in bad weather and the nice one I'm taking to Paris. So. Okay, this is really good. This is, these oh, yeah. are tips, everyone. Um, yeah. Gillian, tell us about your, your coat. Well, it's so funny that um, Marcella mentions duffel coats because I've never been a duffel coat person. I'm a city girl. All my cupboard is full of black, black, black coats, all different sizes and shapes and textures. Um, But last winter, my eye caught this bright red wool duffel coat with fur furry hood and initially I walked by it and it kept on haunting me I need that red duffel coat Uh, and I ended up buying it and it gave me so much joy uh, mostly partly because of the color I've never had a red coat before and I loved having a red coat I felt like I was six years old again and it was the joy of the color red so I'm looking forward to bringing that out in a a week I'm looking forward to seeing it at the moment I see it (laughs) yeah I know I love red coats too and also red coats on children Mm. so sweet but I um I'm working on, I think, I was thinking the other day, I've, I've got so many trench coats that I'm thinking it's almost like the black dress. You can just reinvent, you know, you can you can have so many different trenches. Then n- not one is the same. <laughs> so I have my collection slightly expanding. But with coats, my favourite coat at the moment is a big Max Mara beige. It's, it's camel, but with a little bit of alpaca. And you put it on, it's huge and ankle length. And then mm. your life is just so so warm but not smothering and it's changed my life but that was my most recent addition last season so there's a tiny space in my wardrobe for another (laughs) but that's the thing we don't need more coats but it's almost impossible come winter not to be you know tempted by a new winter coat 
I was watching Dr. Zhivago and I think um, the coats in that film are amazing and the great coats. Do you have a great coat? Like a kind of double-breasted, sort of almost like a um, military coat, Marcella? Actually, I'm looking for this coat since 10 years. So if you see one, <laughs> because I'm quite tall, so the really nice one would be really long. So this is quite hard to find. But you will tell me where to find when I come to London. Well, I think you might have to maybe go to that vintage uh, shop you were talking about at the beginning of the <laughs> show. Maybe that's where you find it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's all we have time for on this show. Thank you to Gillian Debias and Marcella Palik for keeping me company again. Our autumn issue of Confect is out now and our winter edition comes out on the 11th of November. Get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listening.